Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 336. I'm here with my beloved friend, Jeff Catch. You were on the... We did a Robcast together years ago. Three years ago. Really? Yeah. Two in the 200s, mid-200s somewhere. Yes. And now we're back. You're in town. Jeff, some of you may be like, Jeff Catch, I remember that name. Um, Jeff was one of the people who runs Rodale Institute. Mm. Leaders in organic, regenerative, agricultural research since 1947. But Jeff and I, when you're out here, because there's a Rodale farm nearby, um, the West Coast set up, Jeff and I go surfing and we go hiking and we eat good food. Farmer and the cook last night. Um, We do all kinds of stuff. But now (laughs) we're in the temporary acting headquarters of the Robcast and you have pages of notes in front of you. This is, this, you, you have no idea what a joy this moment is for me to sit across <laughs> from you to have this conversation. We have, some, we have so many great conversations, but it's yeah. usually like over the phone, but now we get to sit across from each other yes. and yes. just go. And that we're, I should explain to people, we talk on a regular basis and we talk about all kinds of things, but we got talking about, you read my new plays mm. and... One of my favorite things is when people read my stories and then tell me what it, what they saw in it because it's so be it's just so fantastic. So yeah, when I was yeah. like, we got to talk about Rodale. We talk about you're up to, and we'll talk about the plays. Yeah, and then you show up with <laughs> three and a half pages. Well, because of these notes. plays, Rob, these plays, the fact that you just planted them in my lap <laughs> at the moment of my life that I find myself in. Couldn't be more timely, couldn't be more profound. And I have to say, just straight away here, let's just go. So these two plays, um, for, first of all, these two plays have really touched me like, at a very deep level. Um, again, as, as I mentioned, particularly because of where I find, the season I find myself in. And you know, I'm sure that there's many interpretations that w- the reader could take away from these plays. Um, but for me, like sort of a common thread, like a through line for me, is this idea of leadership. Oh, see, see, right off the bat. Yeah, it's this idea of like, there, you know, one. I had, I had, that was the last thing. See, this is so great about it. Not to interrupt, but I did interrupt. The, uh, it never occurred to me Well, that any of these, these stories have anything to do with that, well, which the, is so fantastic. The, the, the first play, Watsunaka, to me speaks to personal leadership. And the second play, we'll get back to you, is about a job interview, but it's really about how we can more effectively lead others from a, a centered, heart-centered way. And so I, my question, and I think you may have already answered it, was going to be, was that intentional? Did you set out to write two plays with a common through line? No, absolutely not. That's actually why it's so interesting to me is how... When the story emerges, there's, how do I say it? I don't have to feel any relationship to the other things I've made or wrote. It just arises. And even what it, how to interpret it is, because it's just the story. Where does this go? Like when Claude Horst, one of my favorite characters, Claude Horst shows up, and we'll get back to you, and he's wearing wingtips that he bought new and brown slacks, brown trousers, and a green cardigan. cardigan. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know where, and his wife Gloria has recently died. Mm. I don't know those details, even the idea of wingtips that he purchased new. Um, I don't know where all that comes from. And so in some ways... The way a story works is you surrender the point you're making. So you think about a movie. When you see a movie and a movie has a message, you're like, and that feeling when it feels like the message, we would say it's too heavy-handed or it's too on the nose, People, you check out because the storyteller has so clearly trying to get you to see a thing mm-hmm. that you, you tense. It's like someone knocking on your door trying to get you to join their religion. You just tense. Or you're wondering if they're, just, they're trying to sell you something. You just tense. 
Um, so the interesting thing about a story is it only works if you're following the story and you're almost lost in the story, and then later you might find out what happens. Later, it's almost like later you realize, oh, look what my subconscious or unconscious mm. is doing. Sometimes you have themes you're exploring, like the job interview, like we'll get back to you started because I was thinking about, I was just noticing how a job interview is like, we need to get to know you, but it's the last thing it is is actually going to know the person. The fundamental premise of a job interview is to show you a particular version of myself. So you think about the classic job interview question, why don't you share with us one of your weaknesses? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just so passionate and hardworking, it's... <laughs> Hard for me to relate to people who don't work as hard. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we even, take the, even the, even the, yes. the perceived negative yes. gets spun into yeah, oh, what is yeah, a yeah, positive yeah. quality about me that I can name in this moment? Right, right. And and probably the the question behind your question is, oh my God, for thirty years, for twenty eight years, my work in the world in some ways was dominated by this is what I'm saying. Yeah, this is my point. Yeah. This is what it means. Um. For years, I, I would like, okay, this is what I'm going to talk about. This is what I'm going to tell you. Then I tell it to you. Then explain it. Then tell you what I just told you. Then here's how you can apply this. Yeah. Um, so perhaps like putting these two plays out in book form just recently and the other things that I'm doing now, there's some sort of, uh, God, it's like an intoxicating freedom. Yeah. To, I don't know what I mean. <laughs> well, let's let's let's, mean. let's talk about this. Actually, <laughs> this 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 leads to my next question. So, your writing, your work, has had a deeply profound impact on my life over the last twenty plus years. Not only mine, but others around me. And you know, you've written about many things, from science to spirituality to marriage to presence to a memoir to films to a novel. And why plays and why now? No, I have no idea. It's interesting. Any like the previous books, people would say like, "Why this book now?" I, there's some dynamic between us. It's like a movement between the interior and your exterior. There is what's happening in us, and there's what's happening around us. And at some level, we are the environment, so it's all the same. And something that's happening within you and something that you're noticing around you, once again, which is all the same, it's all parts of a whole, start to talk to each other and mm -hmm. something arises. Think about your work with Rodale is both your own health crises, yes. interacting and becoming entangled with the crises of the planet that relates to food, nutrition, farming. Uh, and there's almost like a bang it was like an alchemy hmm. where th these things crash into each other and something new comes out of them. So in many ways, when you talk to people about what they're up to in the world, and you, you, if you ask them certain questions and you peel back why they're passionate about this, why they're doing this, why they love or follow this, or why this gets them up in the morning, or why this is what they find themselves thinking about, generally there's something stirring within them that is in some sort of dialogue with something happening in the world and those two talking to each other, those two dancing is what lights you up. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, so I don't know. I yeah. don't know. And, the, and the, there's a, yeah, like there's my laptop right here on a door that used to be a door, now a desk in the garage. But a couple of, like one of the plays, other plays, I guess it would be you know, the third or fourth play, um, that I've only done like a, like a second draft of is about when I realized where did, the, where did the core idea for it, the setup, was something that happened to me in 1999. Mm. I had this experience that was so completely surreal. And even telling people about it, they're like, wait, you can't be serious. And somehow that, the rough form of that setup was like, gave me a setup and then the play. So why, t t whatever, 20 years later, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does a surreal event that happened that actually happened to you form a rough out structure setup for a story that involves that that turns out to be nothing like the 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, I don't know. Our, 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 it's been the time. The timeliness for our friendship was quite unique in in terms of what's happening in your world and mine, and the evolution of ourselves at this moment. And you know, our our friendship began. You know, I met you at a two day, and then we we sat down together three years ago, just before this thing happened in the world, this global yeah, pandemic. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I've had a front row seat over the last couple of years, watching your evolution, your transformation happening in your art. And I'm curious, you know, how is that transformation in your art, you know, through a play, for example, a reflection of a wider transformation in your own life? Like, what's shifting in the heart of Rob Bell? Uh, I don't know. You're my friend. I, well, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I mean, uh, joy. You just get... Honestly, I think you get better at following the joy. I think debt, duty, and obligation, which can so easily be in there somewhere, just continue to fade. It's like you peel back another layer and another layer, and you just get, you just keep like learning who you are, mm -hmm. and another layer of the wonder and awe. That's, that's how I would describe it. Or else, this, the invitation is always there to become another person who's bitter and jaded and cynical. And this is, you know, you know we, we all seen that a thousand. It's not even, even doing an invitation of that is, is boring. So I think just a, a, a resolute desire to find greater and greater depths of the wonder and awe and joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so absurdist parables. Um, and also some level of my work for years was here are my four points. Um, and to be moving into the thing that's rising up within me isn't a list of five points. It's a world. It's a, it's a, I need to, I want to invite you into this space where these people are having this experience and let's see what you see. You know what I mean? So the room, like we'll get back to you begins with this room where this woman is being interviewed for a job. That's just a totally different setup than here are three truths you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it ha actually it happened. We did a reading in Los Angeles in 2018 for What's a Nucka. Hmm. And so we got all these actors, like a guy from The Walking Dead, a woman from Jane the Virgin. We got like great actors. And we rehearsed for a week, week. And then we did three nights of like workshop readings where the actors stood at music stands with the script and like, like read slash acted it all out. Pete Holmes played um, one of the characters. And it was so, what's interesting is for all these years to be, I was the guy on stage with the microphone. But then for those readings, I was in the audience sitting among my family and friends and people I don't know. Wow. I'm telling you, Jeff, to have been up front with the microphone like for all those years and like it's an hour, hour and a half, I'm going to like carry this thing and say that, just spout off. You know what I mean? What did it feel like to sit there? To, to, to sit oh there my, uh, and, uh, not, and not, and there was nothing, there was no intervention to be done. There was just a taking in, right? Yeah, I swear to you, it was like a, it was like a door opened into a new room. It was, it was, it was like, it was like a, hey, you don't have to carry this stuff. You can create it and then let other people take it mm -hmm. and you can just sit and enjoy it. Almost like there's a whole other game to be played here, Rob Bell. Mm. Yeah. Because <laughs> when the voices speak to me, yeah. they use my full name. But I'm, uh, it was some ease and, God, it's even hard to describe. I'll tell you what, because I, oh, I, can, I can, it's almost like you can see other things in other people better than you can see them in yourself. That's why we need friends. That's why our, you and I talk and show each other things about ourselves yeah. <laughs> that you need a mirror, you need a friend mm -hmm. to walk with. Um, it was almost like too good to be true. 
honestly, it had like a, you want, you want to try to do it? You want to do some more of this? It's like, yeah. Can I? But I've noticed this in the sessions. Like, I've done two of those, that one that you came, those two days like that, where people sit on stools across from me. Um, I did two of these no high, and it's the same thing. How many of us, we, it's like we bump into some new, or we open a door into a new room, and there's like an instinctive, this is too good to be true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's some sort of encounter with the depths of being our, like another layer of our deepest self. You know, I've talked about this where it's like, wait, can we do this? Yeah. <laughs> There's something, something within you. You actually have to give yourself a permission slip. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Try Let's it. Try it. Yeah. That's what it was like. It was, yeah, it was, yeah. So that, so it was just like, Oh, I want to do more of this. I'm going to build on that on on that observation yeah. of yourself. So, as yeah. as your friend, like one one thing I've really watched, but also related on with you. This is something you and I talk about a lot, and I've watched. You've really inspired me in many ways. Is just this idea of continuing to strip it all away. Like I've watched you simplify <laughs> your life over the last several years, yes. in a way that I, <laughs> in a way that I believe translates into your art. Yes. And <coughs> I'm coughing because it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, choked on my tea. <coughs> okay. So talk to me about the purification, that process that you've allowed yourself to go through over the last couple of years. How has that informed this art form, this play, like this idea of plays? Yeah, there's some sort of Zen like, and Kristen. Kristen and I have, this is, there's an, uh, the word we use would, I would use would be like elegance to life that, well, you just take somebody who's like, uh, let me think of a, like a super, super, uh, super duh, okay, here's the example. The person who's like, I need more, I need new clothes. Hold on. Go into your closet and fire the lower 20%. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. I don't know if you need more. Go into your closet and take out the twenty, the bottom 10% of stuff that you never wear or you don't like, or the 20%. Like, fire the 20%. Get, like, put it in a, Kristen calls it purgatory. Put it in a bucket somewhere and just take it out of circulation for a minute. And notice, do you still need new clothes? Maybe you do. But you'll just notice how often the stuff is there. Um, it's... In, in different areas of life, it's there. You just have a bunch of other stuff cluttering it. Mm -hmm. And you remove the, all the B minuses. And guess what? You're actually fine. You're fine. So that elegance, that simplicity after complexity uh, is, it's just massive. Mm -hmm. Or even the number of people in the modern world who you just have to be incredibly busy. Like that's a, a marker of a full life is busy, rushing to things. You know, it's just so crazy. Remove 10% of those events that you're rushing to. Just make a commitment never to be rushing to stuff. Just take out and notice how you actually are fine. You're just, you're fine. Yeah. You're actually better than ever. Spare volumes. There's a designer named Fabian Barron and a friend and I used to just spend endless hours discussing his work. But Fabian Barron talked about spare volumes. So as a designer, especially his graphic work, spare volumes, a couple of things placed in an expansive, wide open space. Yeah. Um, a, one great chair hmm. placed in a space with enough room on either side, as opposed to jammed up against five other things. One great painting that you found somewhere for nine bucks that still speaks to you. <laughs> and uh, it's worth, yeah, just, you don't need that much stuff. Mm. Yeah. So we're here in the garage. You can, I was trying to get all the Bell family stuff on those two shelves. <laughs> this, it, these three, those three little shelves. I do have garage envy, I, might, <laughs> I have to say. This is something. I mean, it's, it's so, so simple. It's so pure. The, I'm overwhelmed by white. It looks like a Mac store in here. 
Well, it's an old house. So, like, this, this garage was built in 1960. So when we were remodeling this house, I was like, wait, let's just spray paint the whole inside of the garage white and then put those three metal shelves. And I think it'll just be, it'll just work. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Garages are a classic place where we put all this stuff where we're like, I don't know what to do with. But you can also just go through that stuff. You can just go through it and be like, wait, am I really going to take up, God, whatever, <laughs> jump rope again? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you and I talk about of stuff. Like a good day for us is when we can go through our homes and, and, and find 20 things to get rid of. Like th- <laughs> there's some part of that that makes me feel like a better, like a, like a, better human on the inside and even if you're really serious about this it's like a you know we all uh, uh, this is one of the diseases of the modern world is of, of our particular version of the modern world is all this stuff became available relatively cheap so you could just stockpile stuff so going the other direction takes if like really set your course yeah so i think in my so this has always, for me, been where all the interesting stuff is around. Yeah. What can, it's designed by elimination, what can you remove so that what is there can be experienced in its fullness? Mm. And Kristen, Kristen was like this from the get-go. She'd be like, yeah, yeah, fine, you can go to those 10 things. Yeah. Or you could do like three of them mm. with the energy that you were going to give to 10. Because for me, always... The terror was that I'd miss out. There'd be all these people to meet or opportunities or places to go, and I'd miss. And Kristen, right away, when we first got together, was like, well, yeah, I know you could do all, you could do all that. But the energy that you spend on those 11 things, why don't you just give it to like four? See what happens. And then what happens is those four things, those two things, those three things become infinitely more satisfying because you're fully present, you're there. Sure. You can, so, you can deepen yeah. yourself into that experience. Yeah, so it's just been, that's been like years and years of that, learning that and doing that over and over and over again. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, back to the plays and this idea of presence, like deepening oneself mm-hmm. in, into the mm-hmm. experience. I want to talk about my experience reading your plays. And, and I think all of us will relate to this. But, you know, both plays, first of all, they're extremely funny. <laughs> um, they're depictive. They're engaging. They, what and depictive they, mean? Like that's a fantastic. I'm gonna write that down. Well, they transport the reader. Oh yeah, into the moment. So oh, good. And it's actually from my experience, it was almost like a like a like a dual moment. So the moment of being in a theater, like it actually, it, I took myself to a theater and I'm sitting in a chair and I'm watching the play unfold. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I was able to transport myself to a white brick office building with lots of you know oh yeah with, with lots of with lo- lots of fake energy and ah, fluorescent it, lighting it, it. and the yeah. the cubicles like i was able to transport myself to the the actual place in which the story was unfolding oh so, so it was like a dual experience oh interesting you're reading the book that is the a book that is a play in book form right thinking about a crowd having this experience while you're also experiencing the story that it's telling. That's right. So oh, that's fascinating. So what was, huh. can you talk a little bit about like the process that, <laughs> the process for writing these two plays? Was there a process? You know, did you set? Yeah, how, I describe what I'm seeing. I, I literally describe it. So like, in some ways. I'm, I'm at the play. Wow. And I'm telling you this story as I'm experiencing it. Mm-hmm. So literally like names, like, uh, so what's a Nucca? The first character who speaks is Mutus Hermaticus Volner Twelfth. Then there's Rish Sunamar McTavitish. There's Nella Montoya Vantpinius Montar. <laughs> there's Thart Pauls. <laughs> Thart. <laughs> right, so if I'm laughing at the person's name, Thart, T-H-A-R-T, Pauls, P-A-L-L-S, Thart, if I'm laughing, and then Mutus Hermeticus Volner the Twelfth, they call him Moot, um, and 
uh, it opens talking about the people along the Gubachong Basin and how the Banashek is the mountain no one's ever climbed. Shu cannot be mounted as they chant at their noonday sun, at their noonday fires. You're just, it's just, you're just, <laughs> you're just, <laughs> God, it's so fun. So in that particular play, in NECA, was there, was there a particular character that you Even most... NECA is just oh. making up a word to describe a thing. How can you say that with a straight face? And obviously, not to give anything away, but by the end of the play, you know less what a NECA... I mean, I should probably use it anymore, but... Yeah, so all that just becomes the thing within the thing within the thing, and then it starts looping back. A comedian would call it like a callback. Like at the end of a comedian set, when they make a comment that refers to a joke, like earlier in the set, there's like that's called a callback. So, mm -hmm. you, so you start finding little callbacks where things start um, looping in on themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's very mysterious how it works, and so it's very it arrives quite formed. That's what I think is fascinating. So was there a particular flow to you <laughs> sitting down to write yeah. a play? Yeah, and you just literally sit down and what's next? Really? When it's when it's when it's happening, the story just like cooks. It's just there. Would you, you can almost like go have a sandwich and come back and sit down and then just it's like hitting the pause button mm -hmm. and sit down and just keep what happens next. And that's what's so interesting is if you, and things do emerge where you're like, oh, okay, at some point, I, uh, this is going to happen, or that person, so I'll make little notes, but otherwise you're just, you, it only works if you're fully present. So would you be out surfing or on the streets of Los Angeles and like an idea or a character or uh, an object would come, be, come to you and would that like, would that resonate and then, you, you know, you'd come back to with that form and build upon itself or was this a particular flow from beginning to end that you just literally sat down and created <laughs> different stories are different um yeah some the, the plays tend to go start to finish mm. um and there's they tend tend to just there's an opening and then it goes mm. from there um there's a yeah there's a story i'm after the story I'm writing now, there's a story, and one of the characters, the first line of the of the novel is, I named myself. And she literally was abandoned as a baby. Hmm. And her first two words was what people called her. But I, I was, this character was forgotten, abused, neglected, and deserted, abandoned. N like, at, at the, as a, as a, infant so i was feeling that like that has to be how you meet her but she's telling you her story it's like oh she was so abandoned no one gave her a name and so the first two words she ever spoke are her name so even built into her name is the the horrible neglect and abandonment that she suffered as a as an infant but like, so sometimes something like that will come. Like, oh yeah, that's where that starts. Got it. So she spends the whole first thing describing what it was like to realize later in life that no one ever, she named herself. <laughs> and have you ever met anybody who's named? Like, so the, like something like that will come up and it just gets really clear. And then it just starts like, like uh, just expanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden you can see the story and you can see where it goes. And, you can oh. s and then things that you didn't know why that arose. Hmm later in the story you're like oh yeah, yeah i got it i got it i can see where, i can see where that oh interesting yeah so i brought a book with me on this trip and it was a book that i just stumbled upon a couple of days ago and it turns out j.i rodale the founder of the rodale institute actually wrote broadway plays in the 1930s and 40s that you've never heard of he's a uh, farmer he was actually not even a farmer he was an entrepreneur who was just deeply curious about agriculture and human health and he wrote plays because he was attempting to shift consciousness around human health and agricultural behaviors and practices. So he really? So he chose plays, Broadway plays. He had an apartment in Manhattan. He actually was born in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And as he accumulated wealth through his 20s and 30s, he began to study agriculture almost as a hobby. And the deeper he went into agriculture, the more he realized that we got to look way further upstream if we're going to get healthier as a society. We have to look at how we produce food. 
So it's not just a matter of what we eat, but how what we eat was produced. And the more he dove into the deleterious practices that were coming online, um, the chemicals, yeah, chemi- mess, chemical yeah. agriculture that was like post World War One into World War II, that whole era that he was living in, he was watching this evolution right before his eyes, and he was trying to warn us that, hey, if we continue down this path, um, that it's not going to bode well for, for human and planetary health. So he, ch- he chose plays as a mechanism to attempt to inform. And I, my question to you is, is like, in your experience, <laughs> why does the play as an art form hold the power to shift human consciousness? Uh, because a lot of truths, you got to come in through the side door. Hmm. Um, it's hard for us to see things in a linear, straightforward, didactic fashion about ourselves, but show me something else and my defenses go down. Show me some other group of people and how they behave. And I, then a whole bunch of, are you talking about me? No, I'm just, I'm just talking about these people over here. Oh, well, yeah, look how they... It's quite easy to see things. So it's just a way... Yeah, it's like all kinds of things. They come in, they come in through a different door. What, what, what plays have inspired you? I have, I have not seen that... Like, I can't even... I've not seen that many plays that I'm like, oh, immediately come to mind. Although like, um, there is a play that's not, it's about nine 11. There were a bunch of plays, wow. a bunch of planes in the air, um, come from away it was a musical made about an airport in Canada where a bunch of those planes landed huh. in this tiny town of Canadians all of a sudden had all these people stranded in their little town and come from away as a had a nice long run still going around the world um but there are these chairs on the stage that are the rows of play of seats on the plane but the chairs also can be turned in they turn them into chairs like in the local restaurant in the town so there was something of the simplicity of those chairs that, oh, God, just amazing. There's also, I don't know if it's British, uh, the play where everything goes wrong. Is that that's what it's called? The play? God, I can't remember the names. The play where everything goes wrong. It's like a spoof sort of slapstick, but brilliant. Mm-hmm. We saw that a couple years ago in New York, and... They like doubled down on how dumb it all was, which made it weirdly brilliant. So certain things stand out or that I've seen where I'm like, I don't even know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maddie Corman did a one woman play about something that happened to her and her, her husband. And I saw like a preview that she was like getting it ready to go. Kristen Hanging directed it. Mm-hmm. And just how she crafted it so I've had these experiences where I saw little bits and pieces where you go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. I also noticed, like over the years, like I would in my, I would be speaking, and I was always, and then your neighbor Dwayne, the one with the Ford F one hundred and fifty, comes over. Like always, <laughs> just these random people were appearing, like that I was just making up on the spot. And then you're in a business meeting with Carl. Carl says to Diane. Can you believe the Bills game from the weekend? <laughs> Carl's wearing a green overcoat for some reason. It's hot out. You know, like, like I was just have always noticed when I was speaking that there were always these characters like hovering around. So I've, I think I've been trying this out forever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's almost yeah. like I just started to be like, well, who? And I always noticed the crowd would laugh at names. Or like I'd be in England, I'd try to think of British names. Um, or I'd use very American, and then this guy Kyle, like a British audience, just thinks that's the like. <laughs> so even just trying out different names with different audiences, you know what I mean? Yeah. Has that reaction? Uh, so pr- I probably, I've probably been trying to do this. <laughs> I've probably been doing this the whole time. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> what um what is your what is your hope for those that read these plays? Um Well, part of it is you just got to back up and I don't know that you have an experience that you see whatever you needed to see that day. Because mm. with a good story, you you revisit it and you see a whole things you didn't see the first time. Then you revisit it again and you see things you didn't see because your life's changed. So now you have a different, now there's a different character who grabs you. Like the, the character who's sad or grieving, you're like, oh God. I know that. Or other times it's the character who's totally lost who you're like, oh, that's me. Or there's sometimes it's the character who's holding it all together, who actually carries the thing and makes sense of it. You're like, oh, yeah, I would like to do that for people. <laughs> you know what I mean? So at different times, different places. I think part of all of this for me is the surrender of that. I went through a, a really... It was, this, it was 2008 when I had a like crisis because I came from like leadership. I was trained like to be a leader where you're taking people somewhere. Like you, they're here, but you're going to help bring them to here. Um, so you, there's vision. Like that was a big word. Like you cast a vision of where we're going to go. Um, but I just noticed what it actually did to me was people are here, but you need to figure out how to get them here. They're at A to B, B to C, whatever it is. Um, and it kind of made me miserable. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you know about this in your work. There's, And if we sense that somebody wishes we were somewhere else than we are, kid picks this up right away. My parents would prefer that I was someone else. We, we picked this up in a relationship. They actually wish I was more like this person over here. We picked that. We 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 have like supersonic. Is it supersonic? Super sensitive radar for this sort of thing. But I had a real like. It was like a massive like death rebirth of. You have to set everybody free that you ever talk to from here on out. From getting to some place that they will have then arrived or that's not your job. It never was your job, but it's not your job anymore. Yeah. You just give the gift you can and just celebrate that you get to give the gift. Well, that's what's so compelling about the second play for me. You know, as I read that play and as I think about the kind of leader that I want to be in the world, it's and what and I, and and the kind of world that I think our leader our, the kind of world sorry, the kind of leader that I think our world needs most right now mm -hmm. is not one that transports people from here to there. But it, it it's it's a leader who meets people where they already are and tries to unlock with what is to be unlocked in the human heart, mm -hmm. and 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 that's what I saw, you know, in that play. Yeah, it's just yeah. meeting people in that moment where they are and saying, you know, how can I help support who you are today in this moment? I remember you telling me the story. You're visiting a farmer who uses all sorts of chemicals, pesticides, et cetera. You're sitting in his kitchen. He's wearing a red Trump hat. Mm -hmm. And you are talking to him about regenerative, regenerative agriculture and switching to become an organic farmer, which is a whole list of criteria. That's a whole process. And he's farmed this particular way that he's doing it. That's what he was taught. And you're, I remember you telling me, well, you're, you're inviting, you're persuading. What is, the, what is it like? Because you do this all the time. You're yeah, that, that actual moment was, uh, was a, a niece and an uncle. Is that right? A niece and an uncle. And the, uh, it was a family farm. And this, is, this, this narrative plays out. Or I was going to say, this is what you see all the all time. All day. Every, this, is, this narrative is playing out all over America right now. We're... Um, over the next 10 years, we're going to see more than 50% of America's farmland change hands because the average age of America's farmer is about 67. And so oh. there's now um, six times the amount of farmers over the age of 65 than there are under the age of 35. And so you have a huge gap of, of hu human beings that are choosing agriculture as a profession, number one. 
And then the, the young people that are coming up that, that see the future of agriculture are saying, hey, mom and dad, or hey, uncle, I want to I do it this way. Like organic is the regenerative organic agriculture is the future of agriculture. And so now you, you know, so that, that very cold January day a couple of years ago, I was at, literally at the kitchen table of a family farm. And there was the uncle who, you know, has been doing it one way his entire life. And his niece, who was so passionate about this idea of organic farming, and she's trying to convince her uncle that she, she's saying, hey, I'm going to take over this farm and I want to do it this way. And all he heard in his head, that entire conversation is, what you're trying to tell me is I've been doing it all wrong my entire life. Mm. And you can see that. You've seen... You can see that on his face. Oh, yeah. In his body language, in his face. And, and so I'm stepping into that room as the mediator trying to say, hey, listen, it's not that you're trying to do it wrong. It's just that she has a different vision for what... You, you had an opportunity. At, at some point in your life, you were given the opportunity to take over this family farm. And she's saying, you did a great job. Help me come alongside of you and let me, let me really position this for the future. Even if it's not the whole farm, can I just have 10% to do it my way? And so we see that narrative play out over and over and over again. And um, it's a really interesting time in human history because we're all waking up to the idea that we are disconnected from nature, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and I think back to our, our conversation. Even the idea of nature. We are nature. Even the idea of a separate thing. Keep going. Well, I'm look, look at me interrupting you. Come on. <laughs> I'm just thinking about how the, the, what in the world... <laughs> Telling There's you the, how it works. There are no interruptions, <laughs> not in this friendship. So three years ago, you and I sat down uh, three months before the pandemic, to, and we challenged people listening to get to know a farmer and to this idea of uh, reconnecting to the idea of agriculture. You know, right now, 150 years ago, I just heard this statistic yesterday, 150 years ago, almost 100% of humanity was engaged in the agricultural process at some level. And today, less than 1% Whoa. Like, is involved in the process of producing food for the rest of the 99%. And so we've, we've been on this like 100-year march away from connection to source. Three years ago, we experienced a global pandemic, I think in the month of March. And um, between March and May of 2020, 22 million new gardens were planted in America. Direct farm sales, so human beings... So the, we, we watched global supply chains fracture. You went to the mainline grocery store like Costco or Walmart and the grocery store shelves were bare in many cases, but yet people going to either individual farms or farmers markets, the percentage grew 420% year over year. So all of a sudden, what do we do? We have a global pan pandemic and the human, the, the human response was, I'm going to plant a garden. <laughs> Or I'm going to get to know the person in my community that produces my food. Isn't that fascinating? Like that that yes. was like our reaction. Yeah. Like, hey, oh man. I mean, that's what happened to me. I know. I mean, you know, I've talked about this a lot, but knowing the farmer and talking to her a couple times a week and like, man, this lettuce I got last week, I had to, it had so much dirt on it. I had to like cut it up, put it under the water, put it in a strainer, spray it some more. And it thrilled me. There was all this sand in the bottom of the sink. And then I would like clean it again. There'd be even, there'd still be sand. So how has this experience sh shaped you? Yeah, even all, all of this, uh, I mean, you know, moving, all of it is a, there's some, some, Tuning into something, mm. um, like with surfing, you you tune into the tides, so you kind of know what the tides are doing, and that's the ocean, that's the moon, um, the stars here. Like last night, when when you left, Kristen and I were out in the driveway just looking at the stars because there aren't city lights mm -hmm. here. Um, that hike you and I took yesterday, mm. and how all this water and mm the streams that are flowing and all that mud and yeah. the dog and I have been in the mornings doing these hikes. Like sometimes we're gone for hours, <laughs> just go up on the mountain, just wandering around in the mountain. The other day a deer went by, uh, like cooking, like really moving. It was like, just, whew. um, you could tell the dog was like, wait, 
what is this? We are not in West Hollywood anymore. <laughs> um, there's a coyote right here, right out here. We see almost every day the past week, and um, yeah, it's all it's all it's, it's I don't know. I don't know if the healing, connecting, tuning in, um, seeing for Kristen and I, it's always what's the new thing that's happening in the world. Hmm. We've always sort of tried to organize our lives around what's the what's what's the new what's the thing in the air what's the and this feels like this reconnection with the soil is um is is where we have to go because even embodiment being in your own body the earth is a body being in our own bodies you see how many people are realizing that the particular structures that we were programmed and conditioned in were about the mind, get you jammed up in your head. And the heart, the body, has known the whole time. So all the ways, even all the people now talking about trauma, mm -hmm. that's all about realizing what the body's been carrying around. Um, all of the earth care, oftentimes the activists that I've observed, they're talking to people about icebergs and water sea levels and caring for the earth, but you're talking to people who have no sense of eating good food or nutrition. Right, right, right. So you're talking to somebody who has no sense of caring for this body, their right. own, about a body that's on the other side of the planet. Well, no wonder you're wondering why they don't seem to connect with what you're saying. You got to start closer to home. It's like you're skipping steps. You got to start closer to home. Yeah. So this is, yeah, what you're doing. God, it's so exciting to see it up close. Hmm. What, what's next for you? What's next for Rodale? What's next for what do you? What's the most interesting thing you're seeing right now? Well, the work of Rodale Institute has gained this velocity, unlike any other time in its 75-year history. Mm. And to be a part of this organization at this moment in human history is such an honor. Uh, so you're going along for 75 years, and then just these past couple of years it like takes on a whole new thing. I've, I've coined us a 75-year-old startup. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's really That's actually really interesting. So I joined the organization as an employee five and a half years ago, and we were 32 full-time employees working in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, our, we were this little engine that could, really. And, and um, the acceleration of interest in changing food production has accelerated in ways we've never seen before. Today, we're 115 full-time employees working at 10 campuses around the world. Who gave you that farm in was it well, Washington? Well, we have all people have just come forward with all kinds of amazing gifts to the Rodale Institute, and thank you uh, to all of those amazing people who responded three years ago. You know, I've met so many wonderful people from this audience who have become dear friends to Rodale, and I encourage all of you to come along this journey with us. But, you know, in the past five years, we've now been able to expand our work. And, and my vision for the Rodale Institute is that we become the university of organic agriculture for the world. Um, in, the, in the 1860s, Abraham Lincoln set up what's called the land-grant system. And so this was a federal-funded initiative to make sure that every state in the nation had an educational institution working on agriculture, and that every farmer in that state would have access to science and education to farm better. And then, of course, during indust the Industrial Agricultural Revolution, post-World War II, a lot of those land-grant universities became, became, became co-opted by big ag interests. So all of a sudden, endowments would come in from the Monsanto Corporation or from mm. you name it, chemical company, would begin to uh, provide funding for these institute institutions uh, to ensure that the science for chemical farming would accelerate. And so today, if you're a farmer in Pennsylvania and you have a desire to begin farming organically, you can't go to Penn State, which is our, our land grant. You, you can't get advice around organic agriculture. If you're here in California, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to go to Cal Poly or UCSB or any one of these extensions and get sound advice or science on organic farming. And so Rodale really wants to step in and fill that void. And the model that we've created since you and I last talked is to take Rodale out into the world. So our main campus in Pennsylvania is really kind of like our field of dreams. It's a 400-acre campus where we've been doing science for four decades. But now we've got to go into re other regions of the United States and, say, and, and sit down with farmers and say, okay, where are you struggling? 
We, we know that there's a desire to change your farming practices. Consumers are demanding it now. Consumer demand for regenerative organic food is an all-time high, but yet we understand that you're facing challenges region to region. How can Rodeo help you? So we're now, going, we're now located in, uh, outside of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Iowa, Iowa. Uh, here in California, in Ventura, California, and then we were just uh, we just received a donation from the General Mills Corporation. They donated an entire farm <laughs> in the Pacific Northwest, so just outside of Seattle. And so we are now in the four major regions of agriculture in the United States, and we're setting up science. And then we have this team of consultants that work for Rodale that that are kind of like extension agents, and they take that science onto farms and help hold the hand of the farmer on the journey towards embracing regenerative organic production. And so my vision for Rodale is that we really can become the university of organic farming and that we can position ourselves as the leading, not only research institute, but also an education institute where um, the next generation of farmers can come and train. Rob, we have this farmer training program at Rodale called RIFT, Rodale Institute Farmer Training. We get hundreds of applications from young, highly educated, highly educated, uh, in many cases, first-generation farmers. They, they come to Rodale because they want to learn how to become an organic farmer. And hundreds of people a year apply, and we, can only, we only have the funding to accept about 20 students right now. But I'm telling you, these people that come they to us... They didn't grow up on farms. Did not grow up... They didn't up, grow up 4-H, horses, all that. None of it. And so in most cases, 90% of the students we see come from suburban America. They come from highly educated families. They themselves come from either you know, four-year degrees or postgraduate programs. These are young, highly educated people that could do anything. They could become doctors or lawyers or journalists. God, that's so interesting. And inspiring. Like their parents sent them to Princeton, and they got out, and they're like, I actually want to be a farmer. Yeah, mom and dad, I want to go to Rodale to train to be a farmer. <laughs> and so my dream <laughs> someday so is that we can train thousands of students because yeah. the desire is there. Yeah. I mean, yesterday I was here in, at our campus in Ventura for a, a conference called EcoAg that was hosted at... Rodale Institute, which to any of the farming nerds out there, EcoAg is like the coveted conference. That's where you go to learn about organic farming. And I bet you that 90% of the audience was under the age of 40. You know, and these are young people that are saying, that's my future. Ah, oh, it's so interesting. Tell, uh, I, people should know about what you're telling me about the event you did for doctors. So, which hadn't been done before. Yeah, um, this is a very exciting evolution to Rodale. So our founder, G.I. Rodale, in 1942, wrote some words literally on a chalkboard, and he said that healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. So that was like his original thesis for our work, and to this day, that is still our guiding principle. We're trying to connect soil health with human health. And we've watched um, our healthcare system collapse concurrent with our agricultural system. Um, people are getting sicker, more obese, you know, Chronic illness is, a, is an all-time epidemic. Um, and so Rodale believes that if we're really going to change healthcare, we've got to go way upstream and fix the way we farm. And so about three and a half years ago, I got invited to speak at a medical conference, like an accredited conference for doctors. There's about 1,500 doctors in this big conference room in a hotel in Oakland, California. And uh, I got invited to come give a lecture on regenerative organic farming and what that means for human health. So you can imagine how, you know, there's a bit of a, like, what are these, how are these doctors going to react to a lecture on yeah. farming at a medical conference? Right. And uh, by the end of that talk, people were standing up out of their seats, applauding, not, not because it was something profound I said, but because they were so hungry for this content. Most doctors get on average about seven hours of, of uh, nutrition training in their $500,000 education. Uh, and so... As I drove away from that, from that uh, conference on my way to the airport, I thought to myself, what would happen if we took those doctors out of that artificially lit, sterile ballroom at a downtown hotel in Oakland and got them onto a farm and got their hands in the soil and uh, really educated them on this concept of food as medicine? And so that led to, what if Rodale launched a healthcare conference? And uh, it was just an idea on paper. And I then had an opportunity to talk to a couple of close friends and funders. And all of a sudden, some family foundation said, we'll fund that. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll give some money to Rodale. But let's see what would happen. And then I started talking to some of the leading minds, some of the leading doctors that have published you know, books and New York Times bestsellers and prolific authors that work at the intersection of agriculture and healthcare. Would you come to Rodale 
to talk to some doctors about this? And, and then our own scientists at Rodale, would you be willing to be a part of a faculty that actually gets doctors' hands in the soil? And so this past year in October, we launched something called the Regenerative Healthcare Conference. And it was a first of its kind conference in the world. There's, to this day, there's never been a medical conference on a farm to our knowledge. We actually got it accredited through um, our partners at Temple University School of Health. And what uh, was it like for you driving in the first morning for the first event? It, knowing that this hadn't been done. It was probably one of the most surreal, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the most surreal moments of my life. And it also, as you know, as my friend, that this was like birthed out of not just a thesis statement of Rodale Institute, but like my own human experience of going through a terrible chronic illness mm -hmm. six and a half years ago, where I saw with my own eyes the perils of our current medical system. Did you think you were going to die? There was actually one night where I did, yeah. It, Things it, were really bad. Yeah. Um, but, but by yeah. and large, I knew that, I, I, deep down, overall, I knew that I'd probably live, but I didn't ever think I'd recover. Like, I thought, mm. my life as mm. a, I thought my life as I knew it was over. That was a, that, I was pretty sure you were that. that sick. Yeah, yeah. Did you talk about that at the, when you talked to those doctors? Yeah, by the way, there was over 500 doctors from around the world that applied to come to this conference. Um, we only had 65 slots because of the current facilities at Rodale. We, we wanted it to be really intimate. We wanted it to be really... Yeah, and but the, there's massive hunger for this. So there was seven, seven countries represented at this conference. Someone came as far away as Ethiopia to attend this event. And so I didn't plan to talk about my story. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, on the night, uh, the third night, I did. Of course. <laughs> and it was just yeah. it, it was just this idea that I would have given anything mm -hmm. anything when I was at the peak of dealing with my own chronic illness to just talk to one of those 65 doctors that were there to just yeah. have one of them yeah. who was willing to walk with me and break with convention that's it essentially that's it essentially be like no there's there's got to be some better way than what we're doing here yeah. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. It's just so fascinating to me how you're and beautiful how your own to the brink and back what you've been through so shapes this work you're doing. It's really great. Man, oh man. So will there be more of these gathering where you get all these doctors together? We hope so. I mean right now we're out our team is out looking for additional funding sources. You know, we wanted to really pull it out, pull out all the stops. It's not, you know, it's not inexpensive to launch a conference like this. Yeah. And um, so there is a plan to do one in September of 2023. Uh, actually, we're going to roll out the conference in an online format here in the next couple of weeks. So uh, anyone will be able to come onto Rodale's website and pay yeah. a small fee to come and watch the entire conference. And, the, and, and doctors who have been on to how food is so central to everything they must have, I can only imagine the things they were saying to you when they're in a room full of people who are. It was like an entirely new community was yeah, birthed. Right, I mean, these, right, it right. was almost like the, 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 the collective sense in the, in, the, in the room. We literally spent most of the four days either out on a farm on, on the Rodale Institute land or in this gorgeous like 250 year old barn. Um, and so the, the collective, like the sort of the thing in the air was like, oh, I found my, my tribe. Yeah. I found my people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're here. Man. Man, oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, what else? You want to talk about anything else? <laughs> you got more? <laughs> that is amazing. I got to like sit with that. What's the thing? I mean, years ago, I remember the small far corner of the grocery store was a little organic section. Remember that? When yeah. it was like just a, and then it just keeps growing, and it keeps growing. But I assume for you and your peoples, at some point it would be that everything in the grocery store was grown without any chemicals in good soil that's able to regenerate itself. Right? I mean, so that, over that the decades, like straightforward. Yeah, over the decades, you know, the, Ro Ro the Rodale Institute and the, the family that started this institute were kind of seen as 
the crazy hippies, <laughs> right? We were always sort of the mm, counterculture, yeah. yeah. Like those, who are those weirdos, right? And and today, there's not a week that goes by where the largest food companies in the world aren't calling us and asking for our help. They're 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 seeing consumer behavior change so dramatically, so quickly, and they're looking at their own supply chains and they're saying. We know where we need to go in order to satisfy our customer, but we don't know how to get there. The very farmers that feed our supply chain, if we asked them tomorrow to begin farming a different way, they wouldn't know where to start. And so what a humbling moment it is for us to, to be able to be a leader you know, and, and to show uh, the biggest food companies in the world that this can be done. And we're doing it. Wow. Wow. I think you were telling me about the largest, was it German supermarket mm. chain or something you were talking to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, the largest uh, supermarket conglomerate in the world. Is, I think it's the largest called Ahold. Um, they're based, I think, in the Netherlands. And they're, one of their subsidiaries is called Giant. So it's a, the Giant. If you live in the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, you likely shop at a Giant. And this is just like one of, and the leadership inside this food company. What's actually happening, let's talk about this. What's happening in the state of Pennsylvania is, is super interesting. So California is the, is the leader in organic production. And that's not a huge surprise, I'm sure. But Pennsylvania, which is a, a, a huge ag state in the nation, is actually the number two producer of organic food. So um, there's about 1,600 certified organic farms in the state of Pennsylvania, but there's huge growth. There's actually been, from 2019 to 2021, organic food sales have grown by almost $2 billion. Our governor, we had a governor, he's actually just about to um, leave office, but he he saw what was happening. He was seeing the collapse over the last six years. He saw the collapse of the conventional family farm in Pennsylvania. And we were using a lot of state taxpayer dollars to help prop up a failing system. And Governor Wolf sat down with Secretary Russell Redding. This guy's amazing. Secretary Redding is an incredible leader inside of our state government. And uh, they had a conversation just like this. And he was like, well, Secretary Redding, what is happening in PA agriculture? You know, how is it that we have this thriving sector of organic in our state? And yet this failing sort of con this, this family farm that we're watching collapse, why are we taking good taxpayer dollars and propping up something that's failing? What if we took a little bit of money and began investing in a new way of farming? So our governor and Secretary Redding authored what was the first ever state farm bill in the history of America in 2018. There was never a state-driven farm bill. It usually happens at the federal level every five years. And within the state farm bill, there was money, a modest amount of money earmarked for transition to organic. And the idea was that gov the state government was going to hire Rodale Institute to build a little team of consultants to go out and help any farmer in the state, no matter where they were on the spectrum, and hold their hand towards uh, embracing organic agriculture. And then retailers like Giant would become um, buyers of that food. So we almost create created our own supply chain inside the state. We had no idea what the demand for this service would be. And I'm here to say that there's now over 150 farms in just three years in our state that represents tens of thousands of acres that are currently transitioning to organic. That one consultant that was hired is now a team of 15 full-time employees. We have somehow coalesced <laughs> the most amazing human beings that work inside of Rodale's consultancy. These are young, brilliant people uh -huh. that are out working across America all day, every day, holding the hand of farmers and food producers. And it all started with some state legislation and a willingness from, from a couple of companies to say, yeah, we'll be part of that. And we're building our own economy around food, around organic food. Oh, man. Man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. That is just amazing. Oh, by the way, we haven't even, we gotten this yeah. far in the episode. Yeah. I'm going to do two days at Let's Rodale. talk about that. You're coming to Rodale. Well, I'm doing these two days here in Ojai, end of January, February, March, April. But then I'll come your way. And in first two weekends of July, I'll, I'm so excited we get to tell everybody about this. <laughs> I'll do, because a lot of people, especially Europe and East Coast, coming this far west, can be a bit of a trek. So I'll be at Rodale, and we'll do our regular two days where people bring their questions. You bring your questions, peoples, and we'll do our normal two days, but then you're going to give a tour yep. of Rodale at lunchtime on the first day, and we'll be on the farm. So and I'm so excited about this. I mean, for those of you listening, great. you have no idea what you're in for. Like, the, the I, I have never... There's a sense of place 
You know, you yeah. know, and, and I feel it every day that I come to work. There's, there's something yeah. about the land. Yeah, there's the science. There's this cutting edge work that's being done on this. It, but it's also a farm. And the, and, and the, the feeling, the, the mystery, the magic that happens on that land is unlike anything I, I've ever experienced. And it's not just me saying that. It's like yeah. to a person, anyone that actually comes and visits Rodale and spends any kind of time there, not to mention early July is probably one of the most beautiful times to be there. Like, Seriously, Robcast peoples, meet me at the farm <laughs> in July. We'll sort out whatever questions you have about your work. You'll meet Jeff. You'll get a tour. We'll eat some of the food there. Mm-hmm. You'll meet a bunch of other people who are grooving on this. That's a good time. Mm-hmm. That is a good time. I'm so excited. <laughs> then you and I will go surfing afterwards. <sighs> oh, it's all going to be good. It's all going to be good. I'm so glad we did this. I'm so glad we decided to turn the mics on. Me too. To what is our normal conversation? Just you took a couple notes. <laughs> we lit this candle. Here we are. Oh, Thank you God. so much. Good times. Good times. Um, how can people, if people want to track you down? Well, first of all, thank you, you know, to all anyone that felt even a little bit inspired today by the work being done by the amazing team at Rodale. We, you know, we need your support, and we would love for you to come along this journey with us. Uh, you'll find us at RodaleInstitute.org. Um, plenty of courses and great resources on our website. Um, you could follow us on social media at Rodale Institute. And um, you know, this is this is this work is for everyone. So please, please join us. Man, oh man, that's great. All right, everybody. Peace and love. Until next time.